0: save being born again, coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And it was during a time period, uh, probably in the late 90s, in which sacrifice was a really big word. Uh, It was normal uh, in Christian circles to talk about sacrifice. And so I remember uh, being at this Christian school and having them bring in... um, a college university group of students for our spiritual emphasis week. They came from a university, they put on this like three or four day kind of event and they called it war. And I remember uh, how exciting the games were and the challenges were. We were separated into three different teams, the Marine Recons, uh, the Army Rangers, the Navy Seals, because this was about war and there was going to be sacrifice, right? And so I remember at the end of that sacrificing, you know, different things that maybe had cluttered up my life that had distracted me from following Christ. And so I remember bringing all of my secular CDs and uh, throwing them in the fire on the last night, just, you know wanting to make war against things that were infiltrating my heart. And then in 10th grade, uh, I remember having a Bible teacher, and she was giving away some of her books. And uh, she gave me the book uh, by Elizabeth Elliot, The Shadow of the Almighty, which was written about the sacrificial life of her husband, Jim Elliot, who was killed by the uh, Alca Indians uh, in Ecuador. And uh, Christians of my generation know his often quoted words. He says this, He is no fool who gives up. What he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Sacrifice. I then learned about C.T. Studd. It kind of appealed to me because he was an athlete. He was a professional cricketer. He left uh, his uh, career when he was at the height of it and became an evangelist. And he wrote these words. Some want to live within the sound of a church bell. I want to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. A sign we had in our house. Uh, lost it during our little house fire. Haven't put it back up. That's been haunting me all week. I can remember the uh, number of sermons I heard in those days about taking up your cross to follow Jesus, counting the cost, no turning back, giving Jesus your all. It feels like either whatever kind of group I was a part or just the day and age that we live in now that things have changed that we don't talk about sacrifice as much. I hear today a lot more about satisfaction. It appeals to me that satisfaction seems to have replaced our understanding of sacrifice, and I think no more than in our understanding of love, right? Think about how satisfaction has replaced our understanding of love instead of sacrifice. Now, love is all about enjoying yourself. The first and greatest commandment of love is be true to yourself, right? The second and greatest commandment is like it, affirm and applaud whatever self your neighbor chooses to be. The unpardonable sins of today are denying yourself, Or to question or judge someone else's self-expression? You know, under its spell, the world today understands love this way. Love has us under its spell, and it grants us permission to live an experimental life in our therapeutic journey toward satisfaction, not sacrifice. We resist relationships that include obligations. Maybe church membership is like, I don't know. Obligation is scary. Anything that would infringe upon our personal satisfaction or require us to sacrifice. It's impacted our understanding of marriage. Now, marriage understood as finding your soulmate, right, who will complete you and make you happy and be the best version of you as you pursue your own version of you. That's what a pastor is up against when we hear Jesus loved them to the end. What do you hear when you hear Jesus? Loved them to the end. We can hear many different things satisfaction, sacrifice. As we look at the example of Jesus in John 13 this morning, I want to ask you to ask yourself, why do you think love is found in satisfaction and not in sacrifice? To recalibrate our understanding of love, let's understand what Jesus knows. In order to do what Jesus does, that's kind of the point this morning. To do what Jesus does, you need to know what he knows. If you don't know what he knows, you will never do what he does. You can see that's the point of our text just by looking at its structure. The structure of the text we have in verse 1 is kind of bookended, verse 1 and verse 17, with what Jesus knows and what Jesus does. You see the connection between knowing and doing. Sounds a lot like James 1, right? But here it is in verse 1. Now, before the Feast of the Passovers, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, Right To depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own in the world, this is what He does. He loved them to the end. Right, uh, And so we see a connection between what Jesus knows and what He does. We could also say it is because He knows what He knows that He does what He does. Then look at verse 17, how it ends. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We didn't know what he knows, or else we will never get up and do what he did. So to help us understand love in a biblical term and to recalibrate our love and understand love as sacrificial love, John sets up, sets up for us here a contrast between what Jesus knows and what Jesus does. Point one, the contrast between what Jesus knows and what Jesus does. Faith family, we we're going to underestimate the love of Christ, if we don't understand this contrast. We have a record of what Jesus knows in verse 3. It's a threefold knowledge in verse 3. We're going to learn that he knows where he comes from, he knows where he is going, and he knows the Father has given him all things. Right. And so let's go ahead and we'll see what it says here in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, It is clear that Jesus knows who He is. And here they are preparing for Passover. Everything is set except for one thing. Dirty feet. Their feet are filthy. And as you look at Jesus at this moment, and you look at what He knows. Are you tracking with me? You look at Jesus... And you think about all that he knows. He knows that he has been sent by God. He knows that he's going to go back to God where he will be seen in all of his glory. Where he will put off this human flesh that has clothed his glory. Where he is going to be given authority over heaven and earth. And he knows that the whole world was created by him and for him. Colossians 1.16 He knows that. And what does he do? Jesus is not delegate. Jesus is not direct. Jesus is not order. He is so filled with this lofty knowledge, and yet he is also lowly in service. What a contrast between what he knows and what he does. Just put yourself in those shoes for a second. What would you have done? All things in the universe are in your hands. You've arrived. What is the first thing on your agenda? Satisfaction. Serve me. Yeah, I mean, I'm at the top. What can you do to make me happy now that I've arrived? Or do you think sacrifice and serve? Jesus chose to condescend as his crowning moment of glory. In other words, Christ displayed his glory by stooping down to serve. Faith family, have you misunderstood where glory and success reside? Personal, proud achievements, humble, lowly, sacrificial service. The King of glory, right, revealed his glory in his sacrificial love for us. John slows it down for us so you won't miss it. He kind of goes frame by frame in a six-fold action, starting in verse 4. Listen to these actions. He, one, rose from supper. Two, laid aside his outer garments. Three, taking a towel and he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. Verse 12, and when He had washed their feet, number five, He put on His outer garments, and number six, He resumed His place, all because He loved them. Why do you think love is satisfaction and not sacrifice? Recalibrate your understanding of love this morning. Recalibrate the extent of Christ's love for you by seeing this contrast of what He knows and yet what He does. I also want you to see there's a connection, not just a contrast. Point number two, the connection between what He knows and what He does. We could say it is because of what He knows that He does what he does, you see that Jesus is about to wash the feet of people that he knows are going to betray him, deny him, and desert him. Look at verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. He knows all of these things, and yet it does not keep him from washing their feet. Why? His reasoning is not, you know what, I'm going to scratch your back if you scratch mine. They have never scratched his back. It is not because of ultimately what they will do for him. Why does he serve them even though he knows what they're going to do? It is because of his relationship with the Father. I want to argue to you that Jesus washes the disciples' feet out of a position of strength. Jesus knows who He is. He knows where He has come from. He knows where He is going. He knows the Father is going to give Him all things into His care. And then now, because of that confidence and identity in the Father, He is free to serve whoever, no matter their response to Him. He's not keeping score. He's not looking for payback. He's not looking for affirmation. He's not looking for validation. It is because of what he knows about his relationship with the Father that he is free to do what we would not do. Faith family, don't underestimate the love of Christ by seeing the powerful connection between what he knows and what he does. It is because he knows what he knows that he does what he does. He's confident. And the Father's plan and love for Him, and so now He is free to serve others. And unless you know that, you will never let Him do what He does to you. The disciples have no idea what He knows, so it's no surprise that Peter doesn't want Him to do what He does. Look at verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter's reaction is quite understandable. Peter is known for often getting things wrong, but this is one where he is like 100% sure he's going to get it right. And we all would be saying, yeah, I think Peter has it right. Because as students of the Bible, you could find in every commentary I read this week that there isn't a single bit of evidence from any ancient Near source of any kind of reference to a superior washing an inferior's feet. No extra-biblical examples of that ever happening. It is for the inferiors to wash the superior's feet. It would have been normal for them to do that. This is not the first meal they've ever had together. And think back. It would have been an honor for them. Because how does John the Baptist try to talk about Jesus when he meets him? This is the man whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. That's the mindset of the day. And so when Christ, their master, comes over and takes off his robes and gets pretty much down close to uh, in an embarrassing amount of clothes, it's awkward. No, you should not be doing this. But Jesus is gentle with Peter because he understands where he's coming from, so he handles him with care. Verse 7, Jesus answered him, What I am doing... You do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. This is not a part of the sermon. It's not a part of the point. But would that not be just a great verse to put over all of your life? Any suffering, any trial, what I am doing now, you don't understand, but afterwards you will. The disciples are going to look at Good Friday and think that Jesus lost. It's not until the resurrection day that they are going to see his humility and his service differently. Wow, this king of glory was crowned by way of crucifixion. He became the rightful sovereign of Revelation 4 and 5 because of his love as the suffering servant, Isaiah 15. They don't get that yet. So Peter refuses. Verse 8, Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. So Jesus continues, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus is saying in that word share, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, it is absolutely necessary. If I don't do it, you will have no inheritance, buzzword. Peter's mind would have been going off. He understands that to be, I will have no share of the kingdom of God that Jesus Christ is bringing. That got Peter's attention. Even though he got the first question wrong, Peter ain't scared. He's like, let's go for number two. (laughs) Why not? I know I'm certainly not going to get this one wrong. Okay, so uninhibited by the fact that he was wrong already, he says, I'm going to get this one right. He says, okay, then wash me head to toe. I know that I started off with saying I want nothing, but now I'm all in. It seems like Peter only has two speeds. It's like all or nothing. He's like, I want the full bath. Give me the manny and petty with it. We'll do this, okay? And uh, you expect Jesus to say, I will do that for you. But Jesus says, nope, that is not right. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. At this point in the story, I think we should begin to realize that Jesus is actually doing a lot more here than just merely washing feet. At this point, verses 8 through 10, we begin to see that this is something symbolic we are beginning to see that Jesus is going to love them to the end by serving them to the extreme. Because ultimately, Jesus did not get up from a cushion. Jesus got up from His heavenly throne. And ultimately, He does not lay aside His outer garments. Jesus laid aside His splendor and His glory. And He doesn't take a towel. He takes on our humanity. And the cleansing Jesus accomplishes is not the washing of dust and grime off of your feet. It is washing the guilt and the shame in Peter's soul. And this is a cleansing that can't be accomplished by water. It will require something far more loving, far more humble, far more humiliating than the act of bowing a knee while you don a towel. It will require Jesus to bow his head as he dons the cross. Because ultimately, it is on the cross that Jesus cleanses us completely by his blood. My non-Christian friend, this is a love that we cannot perform. It is a love that we cannot replicate or duplicate. This is a love that must be received. In order to receive what Jesus wants to do for you, You have to know that you need to be clean. Do you know this morning that you need to be clean? Will you allow yourself to be washed by the only one who can truly cleanse you? If you want to talk more about the washing that Jesus offers, talk to the friend that brought you. See me at the door. We will be just as patient as Jesus was with his disciples who didn't quite all get it yet. But recalibrate your understanding of Christ's love. Jesus loves you, my non-Christian friend, to the end by serving you to the extreme, willing to cleanse you of your guilt and shame and sin. But faith family, there's something here for you as well. Jesus doesn't just wash you completely. He is willing to wash you repeatedly. We see Peter didn't need a whole bath. He just needed his feet clean. The sins that he picked up along the way I don't know what makes you feel dirty this morning, but maybe you feel that you can't come back to Jesus unless you clean yourself up first, that you're going to wash your own feet this week by how many times you did your devotions and how many times you prayed or your church attendance, and we're still dropping off these gifts at the altar. He got the order wrong. We can't wash our own feet. Only He can do that. And He lives He lives to wash you repeatedly. If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you know this? Have you underestimated the extent of God's love for you in Christ? That He loves you completely? He serves you repeatedly? If we've forgotten, it's time to recalibrate that. For when you know what he has done for you, it should transform you to go and to be empowered to love others sacrificially as well. The command to do what he does. Jesus expects you to make this connection between knowing what he's done for you so that you can now do the same to others. Verses 12 through 17, the command to do what he does. Point three, verses 12 through the end, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Right? You got to know. It's the responsibility to know there. Then verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I am. And if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet for I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Right? Knowledge is not enough. Jesus expects us to make the connection between what he does and what we are to do. And here's his logic, right? If Jesus humbles and serves us to that extent, How can followers of Jesus Christ not humble themselves and not serve one another? Just just think about it for a moment, right? What basis would we have in not serving one another if the Lord of the universe stooped down to serve us? What privileged place are we claiming to stand in? Can we really claim a status that demands to be served until our heart satisfaction? Can we really claim a status that says, ah, it's not my high calling to serve? When Jesus, who actually deserved to be served, instead served us. Recalibrate your understanding of love. Begin to realize, right? that the obstacle in our lives in serving one another is not the person out there. It's in us. It's not that they are too hard to serve. It is that we are too proud to serve. It is not that, oh, they wouldn't appreciate it. Faith family, the problem is not out there. The problem is right in here and serving one another. So let me ask you, who are you resisting sacrificial service to? What would it look like to take your eyes off of how difficult that person is and to spend a little bit more time looking at the real difficult person by just looking in the mirror? Deal with that difficulty, that difficult person of yourself by going back to the cross. And seeing what Jesus knows about you. And then what He does for you. And who He's made you in Him. So that now you can be free to go out there and do what He does, regardless of the response you get. Hey family, how is your life going to be different this week? Right? Now that you have recalibrated your understanding of love. No longer measuring love in terms of satisfaction. This is going to be happy. This is great. Measuring love in terms of sacrifice. What are you going to do differently because you know what Christ has done for you? Let me close with four things sacrificial service entails. Just give you four things to walk out of here and consider. Your service, number one, should always be motivated by love. He loved them to the end, and in the rest of the Gospel of John, we're going to see how he does that, and it's through serving. And this is a portrait of it in the foot washing of a greater portrait of how he serves them and saving them. But start with being motivated by love. If you don't have that for somebody, I encourage you to begin by praying, praying for love. And then put yourself in a position to love them. The more you know about them, right? The more you'll find opportunities to love them. Second, your service should regularly involve sacrifice. Your service should regularly involve sacrifice. What can I give up? At least temporarily, in the service of others. Is it your money? Is it your time? Is it your position? I think there's thousands of examples I could give, but I just want to get in the grill of husbands. God has given husbands the responsibility to serve in a servant-like, Christ-like way. You take the initiative in serving your bride. Christ was not passive here. He looked out. He saw the need. He noticed He pursued and he took the initiative in laying aside his position and his glory to the point that he was mistaken as a slave. So my question, men, how low can we get? Have you you let your wife know that you not only want her input, but that you need her input? Is her voice finding weight in how you evaluate things? Men, your service should regularly involve sacrifice. Third, your service should be verbal. Your service should be verbal. No, that does not mean preach sermons. (laughs) But when Christ served these men, he said, What I am doing now, you don't understand but later you will. And it's because he explained it to them. And so as you go out and you serve, not everyone is going to think that because you serve them, you must serve Jesus Christ. They're not going to make that connection. And so, would you please, as you go out there and love your neighbor as yourself, would you just put words to what you are doing? It is not really true that, you know, I'm going to preach the gospel and use words if necessary. I know that sounds nice. But people aren't going to connect the dots that because you help them, that therefore you're a follower of Christ, point them to the cross in what you're doing. Please be verbal. You will have to tell them. Last, your service should be church oriented. Pastor, that's self-serving. Okay, I know. But I think I see it here in the text. And if you want to talk to me afterwards, and you find a better way, let me know. But here in verse fourteen, Jesus says, "You also ought to wash one another's feet." Hmm. One another. Who? Who would that be? The disciples. Paul later says in Galatians, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. There can be a priority of loving those within our church. And I just want to be honest with you. That is hard unless you forget Jesus' disciples were also hard for them to love each other. Different personalities, different backgrounds, different education, different occupations, and, lest you forget, different political ideologies within the 12. So let me apply to you very specifically. This was so hard to do because as I was preparing this passage, my heart was just overwhelmed with how well you serve one another. I cannot talk to you about how you give. $15,000 to the Haiti Roof Project on a Christmas offering. I can't tell you the number of phone calls my family has received for what we have gone through in a loss of a furnace, broken down car. I have heard of people on their vacation in Florida serving other members their second house to help restore it when they get there. Every day, I am surprised by how you serve one another and how you give. Here's where I think we could still grow. And so just know I'm behind you in know, all these great things. These are, the, these are the edges. But I think we can recalibrate to love the way that Jesus loves within our church. Republicans. Oh, yeah, you start looking up. This is good. Make yourself low by serving Democrats. Democrats, make yourself low by serving Republicans. I don't have any stories of that yet, but I'm looking forward to going to a magnifying night in which I can testify that within this membership, Republicans are getting low to serve Democrats and Democrats are getting low to serve Republicans. Upperclassmen, high school students, make yourself low by serving those that need your help. It might not be your thing. You have aged out of youth group. You are the upperclassmen. You have jobs. You have cars. You have things to do. Don't just think about your satisfaction of you going. Think about the lower kids that need your example and your investment and your discipleship. Ask the Lord, would he have you serve sacrificially, By leading a youth group. Middle school students, those of you who are popular, every week we have new people coming here. Would you include others that aren't on the inside? A lot of you have been raised in this church. You don't know what it's like to be on the outside, you have forgotten. Make yourself low, include others. Make a horseshoe out there in Palmer Hall, not a circle. Is that helpful? I don't know what that means. (laughs) You like that? It's a what? It was a ringer. <laughs> the challenge really is, we go on and on and on, but who am I going to serve that I have been resisting? If you are not serving this way, you should go back and check your root and see if this is your Lord. Okay. If Jesus is your Lord, you must follow his example Your service is an evidence of your salvation. My non-Christian friends, Jesus cannot be your example unless he is your Lord. Don't look at the pastor and say, oh, I need to be just like Jesus here. No, he has to do something for you first. You have to get washed clean. He has to be your Lord. But I guess I want to ask you this. Why would you resist the one Lord and Master over your life who is known as the God who stoops and takes on a towel to serve you. I know it's scary to give up authority and independence in your life, but behold our God who served you by dying on the cross and cleansed you. Don't underestimate the love of Christ. Know what he knows to receive what he does. Know what he knows to do what he does. So a moment of silence, you think about how you are going to live out uh, this calling in your life. Lord, thank you for recalibrating our understanding of love by Jesus' perfect example. Who is this King of glory who stoops to serve? We cannot fathom ever doing that ourselves. Thank you for the crown that you won through your crucifixion. May we embrace the way of the cross. May our joy be complete as you, we heard, as we love the way that you have loved. Lord, we pray that you would equip us to live this out, so that others would know that we are disciples by the love that we have for one another. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Let's sing and sing. Jesus.